0: esteemed audience and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host Rob Kent. I tell you what you're going to get two intros this episode Uh, and the reason why is I want to drop in and just let you know a couple of things. Uh, The first of which is that this episode by conversation with Sean and McGuire, it will be the last episode of 2021. Uh, I'll be back uh, with brand new episodes for you starting January uh, 8th. Uh, And then December 25th, as a special Christmas present from me to you, I will be releasing this year's clip show, Uh, so you'll be able to hear clips from all 46 episodes that aired in 2021 uh just an unbelievable uh, amount of of fantastic advice and wisdom for publishing professionals you will not want to miss that that'll be available on december 25th if you're the sort of person who wants to spend that day with the family or whatever that's fine it will be available the next day or or whenever you get to it uh and then we'll be back with all new episodes on january 8th Uh, also my yearly um uh author year in review post will hit middle january first. So you maybe want to keep an eye out for that. Um so this episode tonight with with Sean and McGuire is just an absolutely uh, amazing conversation. I've been blessed to have uh so many wonderful uh conversations here um since the start of the podcast uh but definitely over over the last year. Um I got to see Sean and uh, at um, StokerCon this year. Uh, and so I immediately said, oh, my, my gosh, if, if at all possible, I'd love to talk with you on the podcast. And we were able to do that. Uh, we did that uh, back in June. And the idea then was that it would be maybe uh, late August or September that the show would come out. Uh, but Shauna didn't have a specific book uh, to promote uh, around a release date. And we've talked a lot about um, uh, her background and her experience writing, but also her process, um, things that are evergreen. This would be a tremendous episode if you were to hear it five years from now. And given that uh, nothing ever goes away, you, you may be very well are listening to it five years from now or even 10 years from now. And if so, hi, I hope the future is wonderful. Uh, anyway, uh, all that to say that Seanan didn't have a specific book and my cup runneth over. I had a lot of authors reach out who wanted to come on the show who did have specific release dates. And so push Seanan's episode from... August to September. Why not? I already had the, the the wonderful conversations. I already knew all the brilliant things she said. Uh, I was good. Uh, so we moved it to September, and then uh, by God, by the time it was moved to October, I said, "You know what?" Um, and because there's not a specific release date, this is such a wonderful episode. I should make it the last episode of the year. Uh, and the nice thing about that is because it's going to be from now until next year when you get a new episode, if you're traveling for the holidays, if you've got some downtime, uh, lots of uh, lots of availability for this incredible conversation with uh, with Shauna McGuire. And I appreciate her patience uh, in uh, in waiting from June to to now when her when this conversation is finally available for you. Uh, And that's it, except thanks so much, esteemed audience, for staying with me. Thanks for another fantastic year at Middle Grade Ninja. Uh, Enjoy your holidays, and I will see you December 25th with a clip show, and then I'll see you with a new episode January 8th. And now, the official intro for the show you're about to listen to starts. Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kant. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available as a paperback, an audiobook, and the ebook is free, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, get hooked on the series. Come see me with money for books two and three. There's no time. My god, we've got at least three authors uh, here tonight. we got to get right into this. My guest is none other than author A. Deborah Baker, who is also author, Myra Grant, who is also, also author, Shannon McGuire, uh, and probably a couple of pen names that aren't public knowledge, yeah? Yep. Uh, esteemed audience knows that I never summarize anybody else's biography or anybody else's book, because that's just a terrible way to start the show, is to make you listen to me describe you. Um, so if you would give uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background, and we'll go from there.
1: Hello, I am Seanan McGuire. I also write as a Deborah Baker, who is a middle grade author, which is why I'm relevant to you at all. And uh, my background is I dual majored in folklore and herpetology at the University of California, Berkeley, Go Bears. And that qualifies me to basically either sell French fries or write books about dragons. And I opted for the dragons.
0: So I had seen that you had originally, well, I don't know where where you started, but I know at age 12, you were doing stand-up comedy.
1: That is correct. I had um, severe social anxiety as a child. I'm still not super comfortable with people in unscripted situations. uh, But I was very anxious. I didn't like people. I was the weird little fat girl. And part of what my therapist recommended for dealing with this was, was stand-up comedy. So they enrolled me in the San Francisco Young Comedians Program, and I started doing lots of local stand-up comedy, did shows, um, did a couple of variety pieces, and, and kept that up until well into my 20s.
0: So, at what point, because uh, I know that you paid for part of your, or barter all of your undergraduate degree uh, writing Harlequin romances. So what I did. Point did you start to transition from performing to still performing, but in front of your computer for an, an audience reaction later, I suppose?
1: So, uh, there is a concept in stand up comedy, it's called Working Blue this podcast does not work blue and so i'm not going to give you an example but it's basically doing extremely uh profane and frequently sexually charged material so a lot of things that no one's parents want me saying right now including my own quite honestly and i did not you know i i started publishing in 2009 and that seems really recent but in internet years it was a millennia ago Social media was a baby when I first started publishing. Uh, I'm not certain when Facebook came out, but I'm actually Googling it right now. So Facebook was first created in 2004. So it was about five years old, it was still small. Facebook was still that thing that your grandma did and tried to get you to join so that she could see pictures of the grandbabies. You know, it was not a standard thing. That you could just go online and find everything about everyone and where they were going to be. So I did not cross-promote my stand-up work with my books. I didn't want them contaminating each other as it were. And while only the books under the A. Deborah Baker name are actually written for a middle grade audience and include and intended for kids to read, I try to make sure that everything I do is safe for kids like the kid I was. You know, I was watching horror movies already. I had heard some swear words. I knew that sometimes if you fight with a blob monster, you get dissolved. But I didn't wanna read sexy books and I didn't want to read books that really lingered on some of those things. So I tend to view all of my work as suitable for 12 and up even if some of it is very much not meant For 12 and up and would not necessarily be every 12 year olds cup of tea nothing is everyone's cup of tea so there's not a huge amount of swearing there's not graphic sex there's there's none of that stuff in my written work well I was doing a local stand-up show I had been called in at the last minute because one of their headliners had to drop out and so they needed someone who was enough of a name That people wouldn't feel like they had been rooked out of the cost of their ticket. But was not such a big deal that they would demand a lot of money or concessions from the venue. So I wound up being on the marquee of this little San Francisco uh, comedy club at the last minute. Didn't say anything about it online. There wasn't time. And still somehow a couple of my readers found out about it. And they came to the show. And after the show in the lobby... They were just horrified. They came up to me and they were literally revolted by the things that I had said. Um, After we're done with recording, I can give you the names of the routines I did. Stand-up comedy is usually divided into bits. So you'll have the bit about the shark or the bit that you call that time I went to San Diego. Uh, the titles of these bits will explain to you why these people were so upset but you know they thought of me as as kind of a renegade disney princess and then they came to this thing and i'm saying this absolutely horrible stuff and the room is laughing and i'm clearly very happy and they were just really upset and i stopped that night and went i have been doing stand-up comedy for 15 years for more than 15 years i have been doing stand-up comedy for a long time and i have not broken out i haven't had that routine that gets you the, the stand-up comedy special on netflix i haven't had my own douglas i either need to buckle down and become a stand-up comic, like really work and become the stand-up comic i want to be or i need to stop because it is not compatible with the books i want to write and the stories i want to tell um so at that point i just stopped that was the last headline show i ever did
0: no in all fairness i just saw you absolutely murder it i think it was the 2019 uh national uh book awards um where you were you were in front of a mic and you know, there was quite a bit, I mean, not a prepared routine, obviously, but mm-hmm. there was quite a bit of humor. You, you made me laugh. I heard the audience laughing. And I've seen you present elsewhere. And, of course, obviously, your your books have quite a bit of some of your books. You've written so many that they have all kinds of things. But some of your books have, have quite a bit of humor in them as well. So I'm assuming that stand-up comedy base still comes in handy for you.
1: Oh, absolutely. And part of my stand-up comedy training involved a lot of improv, which is where things like the National Book Awards really play in it's not it's not the same as stand-up comedy even though you use a lot of the same techniques and a lot of the same skills
0: so forgive my naivete for this question because obviously it goes without saying we love our readers we would do anything for our readers god bless you readers Mm -hmm. but your relationship with readers at least on paper i would think is kind of ends at the book or an event that you do So if you want to go off and do something else, whatever that something else, if you want to go skateboarding with Tony Hawk, if you want to if you want to do stand up comedy, what business is it of theirs, whether you're having fun or not? And I don't know if there's a good answer for that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: There isn't really a good answer. We want there to not be a strong relationship. You know, we signed up to be Isaac Asimov, not Britney Spears. I am not a social media star. I don't want to be. I am not someone who sells, look at me, look at me. I'm perfectly composed and put together and I should be on your magazine cover. Um, I am someone who wants to have a personal life, who wants to go out and do things that make me happy in the world. But I do sometimes have to stop and look at what I'm doing and measure what I want to be doing against how is that going to play in Peoria, as it were. And I think that's very normal. That's a balancing act that we're all starting to do almost automatically. You know, we're recording this in June of 2021. As we're recording this, a global pandemic is still going on. People are still dying all over the world. And most of us have been in lockdown since March or April of 2020. We just spent 12 months in our houses. And we're starting to cautiously, you know, go back to the world if we've been vaccinated. Well, for the last year, any time I was going to have someone in my house, for whatever reason, I would, before I could tell anyone that they had been here, if I was talking on Facebook or Twitter, I would have to say, oh, you know, Jennifer came over today and we sat outside on the patio, six feet apart with our masks on, because otherwise someone would come in screaming. And I don't do well with that social media is an endless dance of being out of context you can never assume that anyone knows anything about you other than the snippet that they have just received that one tweet is all you are and they're not necessarily going to do the research to find out who you are you know people don't verify pronouns they don't verify the pronunciation of names they don't verify book titles and they certainly aren't going to verify that you're not a COVID denier. They're certainly not going to verify that you're not anti-science. They're just going to react in the moment to what they can see. And so sometimes we are all the rabbi with the turkey bacon. You know, a rabbi does not eat turkey bacon in public because someone who's just walking by doesn't know whether they're seeing a rabbi eating turkey bacon or a rabbi eating pork. And one of those is okay and one of them is not. So he might enjoy a nice turkey bacon sandwich at home but that same rabbi is not going to go and order turkey bacon at the deli down the street.
0: Just things like that that make me think, you know what, let's just go get a cabin in the woods away from everybody and that'll be just fine. We'll, we'll write our books. And oh, I, I think that all the time. The rules.
1: <laughs> James Tiptree Jr. was able to conceal the fact that she was a woman for more than a decade. She just didn't go to conventions. She corresponded with people purely over the mail. And no one had ever seen her picture. And so she was assumed to be a guy. Bob Silverberg wrote uh, wrote a whole essay introduction to one of her short story collections. Explaining why the people who were starting to think that maybe James Tiptree Jr. was a woman were wrong. Whole essay about the ineluctable masculinity of James Tiptree Jr. She was a woman named Alice Sheldon the whole time.
0: (laughs) So, well uh with with us coming out of the pandemic fingers crossed uh, i like the optimism that that's in the air it's such a refreshing change from where we were this time last year i will take it um in fact i just went to the movies for the first time in a, in a year and a half mask on fully vaccinated went to a 3 30 matinee it was only three other three or four other people in the auditorium. saw the quiet place uh too how was it oh it was wonderful Uh, If you love the quiet place one, it's the same kind of tongue in cheek. We we know we're having fun with the monsters and they're going to chase people around, which perfect. And I've got a seven year old here at home. And so everything I've watched for the last year and a half when I've watched things has been in, you know, five to ten minute snippets of. We need to do this, or we need to go do mm-hmm. half hour of this. And now, okay, he's in bed. It's finally time for me to watch something, and I'm asleep. So to go and sit and watch something from from beginning to end, just unbelievable bliss.
1: <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, I still haven't seen A Quiet Place One.
0: Oh, and you have two wonderful experiences at that. I
1: do. I mean, unfortunately for me, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm up in Seattle. I love horror movies. I don't like to watch them alone. Uh, and I have a horror movie buddy. Their name is Chris, and I adore them. And they moved from the Bay Area up to be here in Seattle with me just as everything was starting to go to heck. So there is so much stress and turmoil and fear for them in the real world that they don't want to watch horror movies right now. Um, I've managed to get them to watch i think one movie i would really call a horror movie in the last year and that was army of the dead so it's sad and i try not to yell at them too much about it because it's not fair you know you are where you are emotionally at any given time it's not their fault that they are not really up for mutilations and all of that but
0: I had different strokes for different folks. I find that the more stress I'm under, the more I love a horror movie because my problem's comparative to trying to get through Las Vegas, flooded with the sun. Exactly. You know, COVID started, I reread The Stand. Me too, and I had, 90% certain I had COVID. It was right at the start of quarantine in March and I'm reading The Stand and I'm sniffing and I'm like, oh, my lungs are feeling a little tight. That book has never been more terrifying. Mm-hmm. How many, I know you've read it 50 times? about that yeah is that your favorite Stephen king novel no what's the favorite it me too
1: and i have discovered a new circle of hell which is having your favorite book since childhood become a massive media phenomenon they have toys and hot topic everyone gets your it references suddenly the book you've loved your whole life is topical and you hate the movies like that is a level of suffering i never anticipated Um, but unfortunately i really love it and i don't understand how you misunderstand members of the core cast that dramatically Beverly is a gunslinger. She is not a damsel. She does not shoot with her eye. She shoots with her hand. She has not forgotten the face of her father, and she did not need to be actively sexually assaulted to be under threat. Nor did they need to turn her into a damsel to make the movie, The ending of movie number one fall fall together. It just made no sense.
0: I agree. I thought the first movie was, it wasn't my it, but that's okay. There was, there was enough modernization that it was it was still fun. It reminded me of the book that I loved and, and reread every three years or so. Um, and then the second movie was just, aside from Richie being gay, which I thought was a pretty ingenious change, like, oh, yeah, if, if King wrote that today, that's obviously what you would do with that character. That was glaringly missing from the 80s version. But other than that, um, it's like, did you read the book first? <laughs> yeah. Did they
1: have to take Ben's personality away and give it to Mike in order to justify lessening the racism? You know, how does that work? If Bev's still going to be your only girl, do you really have to reduce her to the Princess Peach who needs to be saved from the castle? They they just made so many choices that, to me, showed a fundamental lack of understanding of who the characters were. But also the turtle could not help that movie
0: yeah honestly i thought it was the transformers of horror movies because you could see the budget had increased exponentially over the first one and like Mm -hmm. oh we have the money to do everything so let's just do everything and then nothing really has purpose or meaning you didn't you didn't pick something essential to focus on yep oh well They'll remake it again, hopefully, uh, eventually. And if they don't, the book's still there. It's great. (laughs) It's
1: still there. It is great. It is. I have a relationship with it that I don't think I can ever have with another book.
0: Why is that, you think?
1: Because the first time I read it, I was younger than the members of the Losers Club. And now I am older than the members of the Losers Club. So I have been rereading it at least once a year, every year since I was eight years old. I have grown up with this book. I have found something new in this book every time through. The last time the circle came around, you know, the last time it should have woken up, my friend Kat Valenti and I actually took a pilgrimage to Bangor, and we wandered around and we saw all of the locations from the book. You know, went and did our little main thing, um, and and that was amazing.
0: Were you uh, were you especially creeped out? By any particular site, or was it just fan? The standpipe was so fan. much
1: bigger than I thought it would be. We don't have those on the west coast. The standpipe was just horrifying in its size, um, and that that really was it for me.
0: And aside from uh, Stephen King, uh, who uh, I talk about entirely too much on, on on this show because, you know, I grew up, uh, we're about a year difference between us, so a lot of, my sister had the My Little Ponies. I'm sure you knew plenty of people that had this. I would this. like Be- you to and go it.
1: and see if your sister still has them and get them for me.
0: <laughs> maybe.
1: Hunt and kill those ponies. They need to come home.
0: Um you know what honestly she's got a daughter now and i wouldn't be surprised if a couple of those ponies are floating around uh, in her toy box at this point that's
1: fair i mean ponies we forget sometimes with the collectibles that were our childhood that they are still toys and the question of whether something is a toy or a collectible really is answered by context ponies come to me for a soft retirement and they get their nice room and their hermetically sealed shelves and they're never touching untreated wood ever again. And they get to, ha- they get to rest. They get to, to be forgiven for the crimes of their youth. And some ponies are still in toy boxes and still being slammed around by the tail and just like I used to play with my ponies. And that's great.
0: Yeah, I've got a couple of Batman action figures that are still in the in the package but the only reason is because it was a duplicate somebody bought me and I've already got one opened and on a shelf or that has mm-hmm. been well played with and loved. So I had heard you talk elsewhere about um, uh, keeping a pony and a, and a dice on your desk when you're writing yep. um, and I would love to hear what the reasoning is behind both of those.
1: I mean, ponies are because they they bring me comfort. They make me feel better. Uh, I always have at least one die with me. And I use dice as a writing tool. You know, this is a D20, so it is sub-ideal. But if you've got a word count goal for today of 2,000 words, you just set it to the 20 when you sit down. And every time you finish 100 words, you rotate it to the next face down so it gives you a physical manifestation of how much work you've done and how much work you have left to do which is not normally something that you have as a writer i also i am like many of us someone who likes to fidget and i like having something to kind of roll in my hands and play with and i should not do that with this die ow 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 this is a sharp edged die you could use this to kill a man um but you know Dyson and ponies are very important i can't show you a pony right now because i'm actually downstairs in my office rather than upstairs at the desk where i do most of my working so i have some velociraptors in reach i have raven from the teen titans in reach i have my piggy bank and i have a xenomorph and that's it
0: do you i mean is it Do you actually play with the pony to kind of reimagine some of your childhood? Or is it just looking at it enough?
1: Looking at it's usually enough, but I'll also fidget with it. And um, I put my ponies through little scenes and dioramas. There is no reason to get rid of your toys if you don't want to. They can be your friends. Uh, I found the third Toy Story movie fundamentally offensive. Like, the idea that... Woody could not be happy without his friends. That was fine. That Woody wants to stay with the rest of the toy box. Okay. But Woody can't be happy if he's not being played with. Woody was already an antique when he came to Andy. Woody does not want to go through another childhood. Woody wants to sit on a nice, safe shelf with someone who loves him. So, just the idea that if you're an adult toy collector, your toys are somehow unhappy, I found very upsetting.
0: Thing I like about Toy Story 3, because I'm with you, uh, and actually the fourth one really ticked me off, where like he gets Bo Peep back. Spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen the fourth Toy Story, um, but he gets Bo Peep back, and he's like, "Well, bye, friends." I'm like, oh, Woody was apparently just a crappy friend all those years. That's that's mm-hmm. terrible. But the third one, there's that scene where the the toys are in the garbage pit and they're circling that fire and they all kind of look at each other. I think a couple of them hold hands and there's just that Mm -hmm. really long, dark pause of this is it. We accept our fate. I guess it's over. And then, spoilers, eventually they get saved. There's kind of a a happy, not so happy ending there. But that movie never again gets happy enough to counteract the absolute darkness of that. Oh yeah,
1: that's the beautiful moment. But the ending, so... Hey, kids, did you know that adults are messed up too? When we were
0: kids,
1: (laughs) there was a huge push of television and media, including a special called The Christmas Toy, which was the precursor to Toy Story, Rose Petal Place over in the girl toy aisle, all of that. The Velveteen Rabbit was very big, that told us our toys were alive that when we weren't in the room, our toys could get up and move around and do things, and they had a life, and they just stopped when we came in the room and they froze. And that seems like a really cute idea. That seems like one of those things that's fun to think, right? But, um, yeah, no, not so much. Because while none, none of the adult toy collectors I know actually believe that our toys get up and move around at night we have all been to a certain degree infected with animism we all seem to believe on some level that our toys have feelings that they want things that you know you've survived three generations of children you deserve a soft retirement no no uh billy doesn't like to be played with by the head nope barbie would prefer not to have her shoes taken off You know, you will hear a lot of that from people in our age range of people just talking about toys like they have wants and feelings. And that's because even though we know that's not the case, we don't always know it. And that was given to us by our parents as a great package gift with some of those same toys. And then they couldn't figure out why we didn't get rid of them the second we turned 20. (laughs) You know, it's not you, you can't spend my entire childhood telling me this is what a friend is shaped like and then expect me to dump my friend. Um, I was saying before we started recording that sometimes readers will send me their childhood herds of Generation One My Little Pony, and I appreciate every single one of them that comes to me, but the main reason that people send them to me, uh, that they tell me, other than we would like you to have these, is these were my friends. They took care of me. They loved me when no one else would, and I cannot sell my friends. It doesn't matter that I might be able to make some money if I Put them up on ebay and i'm not going to get any money just mailing them to an author i can't sell them they took care of me once and i think that's both a beautiful illustration of how humans are and proof that maybe telling kids their toys have feelings is bad for them in the long run
0: i suppose that's probably a little bit true uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to ponder that because I know that as we're speaking, uh, Michael Keaton is wearing a bat suit again from Andy, however you say his last name, the director of it. Um, uh, so there will be another line of Michael Keaton themed Batman toys, and that's at least a hundred, two hundred dollars out of my wallet. That's it's already spent. In Warner Brothers, you know where I am. Here you go. Right. Uh, and I, I don't know that I will love those toys as much as the original '89 toys. But they will, I think, have some shared grace because it's part of the set. And I don't know if that's a product of parents or just extremely good marketing. It's something I ponder uh, about myself occasionally. Uh, is because I, I, I'm pretty good about it. If I go to back when I was still going to restaurants uh, pre-pandemic uh, instead of ordering out. Uh, If I went to a restaurant and I knew I liked something, I was 90% probably going to order that same thing because it's for sure it's a safe thing. I like it. I know it. So sometimes I wonder if it's just a product of the Adam West reruns were on show at the right time for the Keaton movie to hit for the Batmans to keep me going. And, oh, are you feeling a little bit uh, grumpy here in adolescence? Good news. Here's Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns to really sink you in. And I wonder if that had been... Uh, another character that had gotten that treatment and been the focus of, of mainstream love for that long, uh, if it's still Batman on my shelf or if it's whoever the the other character is that's, that's merchandised to me. It could be. And it's also possible to lose that love.
1: You know, Jurassic Park was my first home franchise. Jurassic Park was the big media franchise that said, hey, little girl, come, come in. You're welcome here. Batman was not super welcoming during our childhood and teen years to female fans. It just wasn't. And neither were the majority of superhero movies. Neither was Star Wars at the time, honestly. You know, these were not things that thought my money had any value. And then we get Jurassic Park, and it gives us an equal number of male and female protagonists. It gives us people of color. It gives us all sorts of options. And it says everyone's money is welcome at Jurassic Park. Please come in. I would have been buying tickets even knowing people were getting eaten by dinosaurs. You know, I hear the theme music to Jurassic Park and I still get a dopamine hit. I just perk right up at that theme. The da-da-da-da-da, I am there. And then Jurassic World happened. And Jurassic World was so dismissive of its female characters and so hostile toward women in the park that for the first time, I felt like they didn't want to sell me a ticket. They didn't want me at Jurassic Park. And so I stopped. I have not seen any of the more recent films, and I'm not interested. That is a franchise that no longer wants my money, and so it can't have it. Fair enough. No, it's uh, Jurassic Park, I have a complicated relationship with. I love the book, but I also really wish Harry Knight had lived long enough to finish out his plagiarism case. Um, and, and then Jurassic World, you know, the the real ideology of the Jurassic Park movies is God creates dinosaurs, God destroys dinosaurs, God creates man, man creates dinosaurs, dinosaurs eat man, woman, discover, woman, woman inherits the earth. There is never an on-screen female death in one of the three Jurassic Park movies, like ever at all.
0: Yes, that's true. Ah, that hadn't occurred to me.
1: And then the very, like Jurassic World, we punish the babysitter for not doing a good enough job of taking care of other people's children by giving her a death so prolonged and brutal that it made me uncomfortable. And making me uncomfortable with a horror movie death is really difficult. And it's just like that was, when you add that to the fact that there it was the first movie with no female kids, they only have boys, and one of their personalities is baby sexist, um... And now, like, here's a, here's one woman, we hate her because she doesn't want kids. Here's another woman, she has been stuck with two kids she didn't expect because she's not a babysitter, she's an assistant, and we're going to punish her for not being motherly enough. It's just like, you really don't want me here, do you?
0: What hmm. does Colin Trevero have? Uh, some Well, I don't know, it's a Hollywood person. They've all got slightly spotty records. Uh, I thought that he had had some direct... I, gotta- I know that's not Spielberg, in fact. Uh, I like just in terms of representation, the second movie, because I thought Julianne Moore was... I can't remember her character's name right offhand, but was a much stronger character. She's the first one to the island. Uh, she's ahead of everybody else. Uh, and they're there to save her, and then she's saving them. Uh, and then uh, Goldblum's uh, daughter, uh, yep. she's wife, is, uh, is African-American, and that was one of the first... Um, Uh, instances of an interracial family in a mainstream story we can remember you
1: know and then we switch to jurassic world where it's all pretty white people and claire is basically there to be a stereotypical hollywood strong female character and all of her strength is look how well i perform femininity while in a jungle where it makes no sense
0: okay you've convinced me that movie's trash (laughs) (laughs) i'm with you (laughs)
1: <laughs> drove me away from my heart's true franchise
0: my standard was just where the dinosaurs pretty cool did i like the part where the t-rex showed up i did but nope i hadn't i hadn't given it the full consideration you're right yeah. I,
1: I love Trexy. trexie has been my girl since i was a kid but mm, just no no can do
0: what does that um does, how does that shape your responsibility to your readers, your feelings of betrayal by a franchise like Jurassic Park? And I'm sure because we're, we're children of the 80s, that, that's far from the only one um, that did not have uh, empowerment. In fact, there's a quote from you I wanted to make sure I ask you about. Mm-hmm. um about well i'll find it in a moment but basically if you are aware of a character that feels like they're not being represented you feel you have a personal responsibility to include that character in the story
1: um i have a rule that if you are someone i know well enough that i would give you my phone number like you're a person that i am acquainted with and you tell me you never get to see people who look like you in stories i will put someone who looks like you in a story at my first opportunity to do so And that is because we all know we exist you know that you're there whether or not i ever write a character that you can relate to but part of how we as people learn what people look like learn what the scope of humanity looks like is by encountering them in story that is a known facet of how human psychology works We learn empathy by reading about people and by hearing about people. And we learn to see other people as people by reading about them and hearing about them. And that is why representation in media is so incredibly important. Yes, it's important for you to be able to read a book and see yourself in the main character, but it is even more important for me to be able to read a book and see you as a main character. Which is why, for and this is honestly unfair to everyone, if you ask someone, picture a, gener- a generic protagonist, picture a generic protagonist, 90% of people, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, anything, will respond with white man. That's the default white man has become invisible. It's not distracting. No one asks, why is he white? Why is he a man? Well, he's a white man. He is the generic protagonist. But if we actually wanted a generic protagonist by just human statistics, it would be an Asian woman. That is the most common single phenotype of human. So your existence should not be any more default than my existence. Everyone should have an opportunity to be in that role of generic protagonist that we all have to learn to empathize with. Because the problem become, becomes that you get generations of authors where all of the women are writing men brilliantly and all of the non binary people are writing men brilliantly because we have been taught to empathize with men since we were born. But the men can't write women or non binary people and the women can't write non binary people because we have only been taught to empathize with who we are and with white men.
0: Shameless plug, since uh, we happen to be recording this this week, but check out episode 120, uh, esteemed audience, with my interview with Pyle Doshi, uh, where she talks about her earliest fiction for years was writing about white men before she finally felt comfortable uh, writing about um, an an Indian family, uh, an Indian character similar to her background. Um, Part of that
1: is that we get told that white men will only empathize with white men. So if we want our books to sell and be successful, we have to write about those white men. And so we wind up putting our own identities on a back burner because we just don't trust that anyone else will come for the party. And that is not fair. It's not fair to kids who don't fit in that category. It's not fair to adults who don't fit in that category. I have had people older than me literally come to me crying because one of my books was the first time they saw someone that actually looked like them in a published piece of fiction. And that is profoundly unfair. I think that my greatest single weakness as a human is that I expect the universe to be fair. I know it's not, but I still expect it. And so when I can do something to rectify it, even a tiny bit, I will.
0: Just a curiosity, I, I ask these questions, I don't know the answer, which is why I'm asking. Um, but if you're writing about uh, a character, now you're three different people on paper already. And um, that's that's the pen names we, we don't know about. Um, but if you're writing about somebody sooner or later, far outside of your personal experience, um, say if you're gonna write about an, an Asian woman, well, you're a woman, you're not Asian. How do you temper that? Do you use, um, Uh, cultural sensitivity readers that come in and kind of help you and make sure that you've done a a great job of representation do you ever feel like oh that should be represented but it's not my story to tell what are your rules regarding things like that
1: i mean you say you don't know the answers there really is no answer there are best practices there are things we can do to try and not be jerks but there's no single if you do it this way it will work Um, I use cultural consultants and sensitivity readers, depending on what I'm doing. I do look at some stories and go, you know what? That story is not for me. My two sisters, uh, my two younger sisters on my mother's side are both Latina because they have a different father than I do. And we grew up in the barrio, not just in the ghetto, in the barrio of our part of California. So they were two Latina girls surrounded by... Um, by latino men who spoke a language they didn't speak but who recognized certain physical features that they have and so they were harassed by both the white kids for not being white enough and by the latina kids because they were not Mexican enough because they were not brown enough Um, and the story of their childhood even though I shared it is not my story to tell it would be a white author capitalizing on brown pain and that's not appropriate there are enough stories that are mine to tell that there is absolutely no reason i would need to be telling that story it is impossible to get a perfect answer and sometimes the answer is wait you know one of my one of my series under my own name uh probably the series with the most penetration in a teen audience is the wayward children books and those start with Every Heart of Doorway and proceed onward from there. In Every Heart of Doorway, we meet a character named Cade. And Cade is a boy who went through a mirror into a what they call a fairyland called Prism, where they wanted him to fight the Goblin King and be their next queen. And he finally one day stood up and said, well, I'm not a girl. I'm never going to be your queen. And they responded by kicking him out of fairyland. And that's how he wound up part of our cast so Cade is a trans boy Um, he would be a trans man if he were a little bit older but he's a trans boy right now and he is a trans boy who is explicitly written not to have always known because he is one of those characters that someone I know and love came to me and said I never get to see myself in fiction when I see a trans narrative in fiction it's always a case of oh I always knew I always knew from the time I was born that I was a girl or I was a boy and this friend of mine he didn't always know he is a man absolutely a man who will tell you that when he was a little girl he did things this way and so that's Cade's story Cade is a is a man who was a little girl at one time that is a genuine trans experience it is not unique to my friend it is not unique to Cade it is rare in fiction I am a cis author telling a complicated trans story with him And so right now, Cade has to wait and Cade has to wait until I have built enough trust with my readers that when they pick up a book and the first sentence refers to Cade as a girl, they don't get mad at me. So sometimes building enough trust that people will forgive you long enough to see that what looks like a betrayal is not is the most important step.
0: One uh, more uh, question in this vein, and then uh, and then, then I've got uh, lots of questions uh, for you about uh, your your writing habits and and, and how you uh, have have built a, an empire. Um, but you have built an empire. You've been nominated for several Hugo's. You've written how many books have you written now? I don't know. It's a lot, right? it has got to be like close to forty, fifty. More than forty. It's a lot. So if somebody comes along and they have the authentic experience of whatever character we want to pick, but they do not have your background, they have not built your empire, they do not have your reach and your readership, does that tilt the scales at all if if maybe they would be better working with you to get a better constructed story? Again, don't have an answer, just want to hear your thoughts.
1: I mean, you keep saying Empire, but that really implies more of a Rick Riordan level. I am not at Rick Riordan's level. I would love to be at Rick Riordan's level. Uh, Rick Riordan could buy and sell me 90 times over. I like to eat, so I would love that. Um, This is less of an empire and more of a struggling island nation. You know, we are very small. We don't have a lot of room for expansion. Sometimes we have tsunamis. People keep trying to take us over. We don't really know what's going on half the time. Um, And I'm sure I've just said something accidentally insulting, and I am sorry. That was just kind of fumbling for a metaphor. Um, I am not yet at a prominence level where it would really be an advantage for a marginalized writer to team up with me, Uh, nor honestly am I available at all times. You know, I am booked out through 2024 right now. It's a fun, fun day. Um, There are times when collaborating with a more established author is the way to go, Um, but not always.
0: You're booked out to 2024, and I know you write, what, about six, seven books a year on average? Oh, yeah, I that, yeah. Um, so is there time for you to chase a, a whim of fancy where you've just got an idea that's not under contract just oh, for a yeah. little
1: bit? I do that just for fun. Like, I write about an average of two books a year that we don't publish. And it's not because they're bad books. It's because there's not room for them in the schedule, and so we put them in the trunk, when I get hit by a bus, they'll keep putting out years for 10 years. I'll be, I'll, they'll keep putting out books for 10 years. I'll be VC Andrews. You know, found another lost Sean McGuire McGuire manuscript. We thought she was dead. She is so dead. She has been dead for years. <laughs> she really had no chill, did she? No. None at all.
0: Well, uh, You've got the dice a thousand words is a good start what's a what's a good day look like how many times are you turning that dice over
1: i use multiple dice on most days rather than resetting the same die for multiple word counts and i actively do not give my daily word count we all live on social media which we talked about a bit at the beginning of this and we forget that social media is the highlight reels of one another's lives I commented on Twitter one day that if I did something, I could have a cookie. And Laurel Hamilton promptly yelled at me for assuming that I had to earn food. And I'm like, I don't talk about everything I eat. You know, I have eaten today. I have had an omelet. I have had some cauliflower. I had a small salad. I am getting calories. I'm okay. But like many of us, I can use food as a reward. So if I finish doing this somewhat unpleasant task that I don't want to do... I can have a cookie and I'm allowed to set my reward systems, but I'm never gonna tell you about everything that sucks. So what we wind up with is that younger writers, and that doesn't even necessarily mean chronological age, that means young in their writing journey. So you could be 19 and be an older writer because you started getting really serious when you were 11. You could be 30 and be a younger writer by this definition, but younger writers hop on social media and they find the writers that they know and look up to and they see, oh my gosh, Robert did 3000 words yesterday. I can't even manage 800. I'm never gonna be successful. And then they beat themselves up based on an arbitrary number that fits your life, but doesn't necessarily fit their life. You know, I have made choices with my life. I have no children. I don't want any. I have toys, cats, and
0: dice. So I have that's cats. Be a huge difference maker. Huh? Uh, just in terms of, of freeing up time, that has to be a huge difference maker.
1: Oh, it's a huge difference maker. You know, I have no children. I um, I actually bought a house big enough that my mother could live here. My mother lives here, and the way she pays her rent is by cleaning my house. I am the modern Thoreau. I don't do my own housework. Um, And I'm I'm paying for it. This is not, I'm exploiting my mother. She gets free rent in the Seattle area. That's a big freaking deal. But the compensation is worth it for the time it gives me. So I've got all of these factors giving me extra time that you don't necessarily have. And then on top of it, I am a full time author. This is my job. It is 100% of what I do. And that is the authorial equivalent of being an Olympic athlete i'm in full-time training i get up in the morning i start writing i write until i hit whatever number i have declared for that day i stop writing i go to bed so saying if you can't hit this number that i hit you are doing something wrong is abusive it's cruel and so i don't give out hard numbers because it's not fair
0: fair enough well um let's not talk hard numbers because you are you are the Olympic athlete um we admire what you're doing it's not going to be possible for all of us but let us fantasize for a moment if we had that at life of an olympic athlete is it writing all day i know you play overwatch for at least part of that day right
1: i generally get up um start writing write until my brain kind of fuzzes out eat lunch do something else for 30 to 45 minutes and then go back to writing Um, 30 to 45 minutes can be playing Overwatch. It hasn't been much recently. I don't like the way that they've rebalanced heroes. I am not the world's most amazing Overwatch player. Never have been. And so the fact that they keep restructuring the game to benefit the top 2% of players just means that every time I get decent, I get hammered. I was a Mercy main. They nerfed Mercy for the sake of the competitive players. I'm still not okay with losing my big res. You know, that sort of thing. Um, So I've been sorting my dice a lot recently. (laughs) I have a big dice collection. It is in my My Little Pony room. I would like it to be entirely put away so that I can start better sorting and organizing my My Little Ponies.
0: So, I mean, are we talking like it's what eight hours of writing and four hours of whatever you choose to do i assume you've got to read somewhere in there and then of course you've got social events like this one uh, and, and all the other things you have to do so what's so what's an average work day or average work week look like for you Not an getting-
1: average work day looks like i work from roughly 7 a.m to 4 p.m about there and then i do whatever until i go to bed um i get up at six or seven No matter what i can't help it it sucks i hate it i wish i could sleep until nine or ten like a normal human i can't um but so you know get up at seven pretty much start working it takes me about 30 minutes before my hands come fully online and i can really type and i'll use that time to check social media feed my dragons over on flight rising which is a clicky dragons game you know whatever and by the time that my hands have warmed up and i can actually start typing it's been about 30 minutes um i'll usually eat breakfast somewhere in that range i'm good at forgetting to eat but i do need to do it so
0: what is your social media balance because i i saw that you're you're fairly active on twitter and you've got a, a, a pretty sizable following
1: i um i bop into twitter periodically the, the best thing I ever did with Twitter was basically restrict myself to my mentions. I spend 90% of my Twitter time entirely in my notifications tab and will only pop out for a few minutes if something actually needs my attention. And that's because there is no reason to go around picking fights with people. There is legitimately no reason that I need to be using my time on Twitter to wander over to your profile and tell you that you're beard looks stupid in that shirt i don't know um as long as i stay in my mentions i am mostly interacting with people who want to be interacting with me and and that makes for a much more pleasant experience and it keeps my blood pressure lower
0: fair enough uh and so at this point being on contract after you said 2024 um you you do have the awards you've got the street cred do you we haven't built an empire, but do you feel the confidence that you've made it and you're going to be able to continue to write indefinitely? Or is there still a bit of panic that if I don't do what I need to do, this is all over and I got to go be a, a I don't know, get a job at a restaurant or whatever is going to be available post-pandemic?
1: I don't think the panic ever fully goes away. You know, I grew up very, very poor. I grew up in the state of California in the welfare system. I ate the moldy bread and the government cheese, and and that was my entire life. That was my childhood. So I have a grinding fear of poverty. I just have an appallingly large fear of, of poverty. Um, every time something doesn't go exactly the way it's supposed to go, every time it doesn't go according to plan, part of me is convinced that I'm going to be living under a bridge by this time next year. Um, And, and, you know, I live in America. We have to pay for our own health insurance. We have to pay for our own health care. I am not as young as I used to be. And I I am over 40. I am 42 years old. And I have hit the point where delightfully my body starts breaking down. It's the best thing. So I can't stop working. And the one real downside of choosing a creative lifestyle is that you don't have any you're you're paying your own into social security you don't get to retire you write until you break
0: well that brings up the question i've 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 been pondering for a while is do writers retire i know some stop um or at least they don't publish anymore but can you foresee yourself even if everyone said no more contracts we're never going to pay you for another dime could you stop writing
1: i wouldn't stop writing you know, there's a difference between retirement and just not writing anymore. And I don't think I am capable of stopping writing. I started writing because I couldn't not write. I want everyone to meet my imaginary friends, and I want you to like them as much as I do.
0: So, with three different, uh, three different author names, Mira writes, writes feed, writes the the whore, the the darker stuff. She's who's coming to Stoker Con uh and then um you're writing um uh, the middle grade uh, as well do you i mean do you put on you know i'm sure you don't put on actual physical costumes to to embody these these different writers but what changes within you or is it all in you when they just put whoever's name on there is bright for the market
1: i mean it's it's all in me i've been playing dungeons and dragons since i was 12. you learn how to be different characters Um, I do find that I pick different words for different people in a, to a degree that I would not have thought was maintainable when I first started doing this. I would have thought that that was just not gonna work. Um, and it turns out to work pretty darn well, you know, and part of it is knowing who's writing what. Um, Deborah writes for a middle grade audience, and that means that she does not swear very much, she does not write sexy stuff, there's there's a lot of stuff that Deborah doesn't do, and that's okay, and it helps that Shannon is not super into writing sexy stuff either, uh, Mira writes no sexy stuff at all, all of the people in, Mar- in Mira's books, if they're naked, they're dead. Um, the most fun part about having three pseudonyms is that if you want to discuss certain things, you do actually have to start talking about yourself in the third person. And then people are like, um, mm, mm, do you think that you're multiple people? No. Are you sure? Yeah. Because <laughs> it sounds like you think that you're multiple. No. No. <laughs>
0: Fair enough, um, and um, just out of curiosity, I know you wrote the Harlequin romances um, to pay through undergrad. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you have kind of on in your back pocket? Hey, if uh, for some reason, because you do have this fear of poverty, um, and you have this this the skill and this talent, is there a possibility? Hey, here's another pen name. Uh, we're going with, with straight romance, whatever the most popular romance category is at, at the time, and and we're, we're paying bills that way? Or is that something you have no interest in whatsoever?
1: I have no interest in it. And also, I think more importantly, readers are cannier today than they used to be. You know, we have the Internet. We have the ability to go comparison shopping. Um, we can find things. And people can tell when you're insincere. I am not very good at, I I mentioned, you know, that I don't write the sexy stuff. I don't care. I think it's boring. I don't want to write the sexy stuff. Um, And that's why I don't write the sexy stuff. And that means that if I'm trying to sell to an actual romance audience of actual romance readers, they can tell very quickly that I'm kind of disingenuous. They can tell without putting a lot of effort in that, I am I'm making fun of them for lack of a better way of putting it you know that I'm not writing them a sincere story that actually plays into the kind of things that they enjoy and want to read about um and as a consequence I don't think I would be able to publish romance unless I were trying to do it um now and under my own name I would have to be like no 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 I'm a New York Times bestseller. Let me write you a romance. And that would damage my sales very badly. Uh, That said, I love chiclet romance. The the Meg Cabot space, the Princess Diaries space, I would love to write those. And I have written a couple of them. I just haven't been able to get them published because we're not in a space right now where that is a very popular subgenre. But I live in eternal hope that the fun, frothy, not as much about the sexy as they are about the romancy uh romances will make a comeback
0: well you're writing two extra books every year i assume you've got a nice collection that as soon as a market opens up oh let me get this over no market market opens
1: up i'm ready to move in
0: um and so okay you sit down and you're going to start a new book what happens first is it a conversation with the agent about what's expected what kind of book it is or have you already sat down and written an outline what's your first step
1: I mean, honestly, my first step these days is get a contract, which sounds super privileged, but is is kind of where I am currently because I am primarily a series writer. You know, I write books and then I write their sequels. And that is a nice position to be in. I like it here. Um, it can also be occasionally a little bit stifling because I don't actually get to make a decision about my next... Four books. There, there are no decisions to be made. They've already been made. Those books are sold. I am going to be writing the book that I have promised to my editors. Period. There, there is no negotiation. There is no room for a conversation. And, and that's okay. Again, I knew what I was signing up for when I did it. This is not a deal with the devil. This is straight up, you wanted a job, you got a job but um, the other downside, not downside even, but the other thing about working in long series is that I've got outlines already. I'm always a little bit lost these days when I start something new, because I'm like, wait, I have to think? (laughs) But thinking isn't part of writing. I just sit down and I write. I would like to speak to the manager of reality. The manager of reality is not taking my calls um but you know so it is it's a little bit jarring honestly when i hit something that's not part of one of the ongoing series
0: so with um with multiple series going and multiple books in how are you keeping track and how far in advance do you do you plan out your uh, story
1: so uh batman he's got a weakness to kryptonite right i'm sorry batman he's got a weakness to kryptonite right uh,
0: not that i'm aware of no and I mean, he and likes to, he, fight fight Luz to fight superman
1: D- you had no trouble keeping that straight
0: i did not know
1: that is how i love the stories that live in my head as much as you love batman
0: and they're all just, you don't have like a like files upon files of here's all the obscure things I need to know about this character that was mentioned once, two books ago that was a small part or?
1: I have some character wikis that I maintain and, you know, I try to make sure that I don't contradict myself, but I also have access to the fan-made wikis and I have access to all of my files and I can data search just my own earlier books if I need to. Um, but usually the comparison i'll give people is it's like watching television you know i've got shows that are inside my head and i don't have to pay cable and it's great and i'd like to watch them it makes me happy why would i have trouble keeping that straight do you have trouble with the things that make you happy oh you know?
0: no not that make me happy but keeping things straight sure yeah, i had to keep pretty detailed notes uh over a trilogy and that's nothing compared to the sum of your series
1: and you know some of those the october day books are i love them desperately and they are really a self-indulgent attempt to justify my time in college like big chunks of the toby books are cribbed from my undergrad thesis so i kind of did that research uh very expensively quite a few years ago
0: uh, well, do you ever reach out to fans and say hey would you like to be my beta reader ahead of time you know this series very well let me know if there's something that is missing that way
1: that way lies some big dangers for an author um you know for one thing you don't know you don't know who you can actually trust which is a terrible statement but We had that big brouhaha more years ago than I think it was, I'm pretty sure, but not that long ago, where a reader leaked Stephanie Meyer's entire upcoming book to the internet. And so she wound up having to pull a Twilight book, not necessarily high literature, but it was still wrong. She wound up having to pull a Twilight book because the whole thing had been posted online by someone who wanted to show they said how clean her first drafts were I would literally die you know you don't know if it's just if it's a reader and someone that you don't know whether you are sending your book to somebody that will actually respect your privacy that will actually not talk about things that you have asked them not to talk about or whether you are putting yourself into this situation where suddenly your entire new book is online and you're going to have to deal with that you also potentially run into the issue where legally you own your characters that is that is how this works that is why fanfic is okay and I am a huge advocate for fanfic you know fanfiction is is a-okay I cannot get sued for writing an October day book that uses a concept that you've also used in one of your fanfics. That's not how it works. But you could potentially decide that I had stolen something from one of your fanfics and take me to court. I would win. We're we're 90% sure that I would win if you tried to sue me for stealing your idea when it'd been published in a fanfic based on my work, but Back again to reputation. We live in a reputation economy. We live in the social media age. It is not being a good neighbor to steal things from your fans. It's not. It's not being a good member of a community. So if you can legitimately go on to Reddit and say Sean and McGuire read my fanfic. Sean and McGuire stole this idea from me. I have proof. And what you have is an email from me thanking you for your help i now look like a real jerk you have just damaged my reputation in a way that is probably more harmful than actually managing to sue me so unfortunately the fear of litigation does mean that there has to be a little boundary drawing
0: so how do you interact with uh, your fans at, well, virtual events for now until we're we're back in person everywhere or rereading their reviews after the fact, reading their fan mail after the fact.
1: I have a PA who receives all of my email before I get to see it and she goes over it to make sure that there's nothing in there that I'm not allowed to see. She does actually filter out people sending me email about their fanfics or telling me their ideas. I never see those. and she also she also filters out people calling me nasty names because I did something they didn't like. But I get the rest of it. And in person, people are usually pretty good about not just walking up and starting to tell you about their fanfic. You know, so in person, it's great. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm a giant nerd. <laughs> like, I have no chill at all. Never have. It's not one of my great gifts. Um, No chill i am enthusiastic about everything i'm happy to see everything i'm like a golden retriever that somebody went and gave blue jeans to and uh, as a consequence it is not hard to interact with readers because i am one of you you know i i am the first fan of all my own stuff uh that's why i take the time to read it you know i wouldn't tell you stories about these people if i didn't love them um, uh, as Mira Grant, I wrote the first ever a- YA Alien book. It's called Alien Echo, and uh, it is aimed at teen audiences. And when they asked if I would do that, I did a dance all around my house, not because they were paying me, they did pay me, but they didn't pay me that well, but because Alien is literally the first movie I can remember seeing i was three years old the first time i saw alien which is way too young to be watching alien and there was something wrong with the adult male who let me watch it but you know it is it is the first movie it is foundational to me i am who i am in part because of alien and so being able to be a part of that franchise was just such a huge deal for me it was enormous And, um, you know, again, they did pay me. But also, again, that is not why I took the job. I took the job because I was getting to make Alien Canon. I was getting to do something in this world that meant so much to me. And uh, I bring this up because when they announced that I was writing this Alien YA novel, quite a few people wanted to announce that the franchise was dead because I was going to get cooties all over the, the Xenomorphs somehow. Um, and one dude decided that the best use of his time was harassing me on Twitter, like seriously going at me on Twitter, about the fact that I was only doing this for the money. There, there was no possible motivation for writing a YA alien book that was not they are paying you a million dollars. They did not pay me a million dollars. Kind of wish they had though, that would have been nice. Um, they did not pay me a million dollars. I would have done it for less than they actually did pay me because it was being a part of something I loved and I'm a giant nerd with no chill. Um, so, you know, that is, that helps a lot at dealing with readers. Just, you cannot spend five minutes in an actual physical room with me and not pick up on the fact that giant nerd, no chill.
0: (laughs) Well, I've heard you talk elsewhere back when in-person events were were still a thing that um, people, if you were a guest of honor, people were way too handsy uh, coming up and and, and touching you uninvited as as a total stranger. Between that and between these toxic fandoms that I'm sure you have to have been approached by somebody shouting at you about Alien or, or something else. How do you separate from yourself and how do you, are you able to keep that from dampening your joy, your pure joy at, at doing the thing you love?
1: It does sometimes dampen the joy. You know, my last physical convention of 2020 before the world shut down was a, uh, a comics and anime convention in Biloxi, Mississippi. And there was a dude there who was selling individually, the D&D pre-painted minis that you can buy from WizKids. And I love these things, God I love them so much, it is unreasonable how much I love them. And so I'm standing at his table trying to go through the piles and piles of minis and there are so many and I have some money. And I really want to exchange the money that I have for the minis that he doesn't want anymore. Like, this is a match made in heaven. I'm going to get minis. And some people come up that had come to the convention that were readers of mine that had not been able to bring themselves to approach me to signing. But because I was at this minis table, they saw me as approachable. And they wanted to get stuff signed. And I'm like, that is great, but could you go away? (laughs) i am i am not being professional mode shaman right now i am buying minis i really just want to be left alone to buy minis please and and you can't say that you can't do that It, it doesn't work you know especially when you're writing for a younger audience which i frequently am um you can't really say to an 11 year old who is excited about your book i'm sorry i don't have time for you it doesn't work so part of it is remembering when I'm in these spaces that I am there to work, I am at my job, and what will make me happy is less important than what will make a single, a single reader happy. And if I just approach it with that attitude, I don't get as, as grumpy about it. Um, and it, it is sad, it makes me very sad when I have to, make, to take that step back and make that adjustment, but it's also worth it, and it's what I signed up for.
0: when you're uh, writing um, about Aliens or X-Men or Ghost Spider, uh, any of these uh, established IPs uh, versus another uh, uh, book in any of your series, um, obviously you don't want to let your fans down. Is there a difference in worrying about not letting your fans down and not letting not only your fans but all of the fans of the IP down? Does that create extra pressure or is it a little bit, less pressure it both creates
1: extra pressure and a little bit less pressure because when you are writing in your own ip you are the arbiter of whether something is so and you can get used to that you can kind of get drunk on playing god you know and this idea that you know everything um and that is obviously not the case about someone else's ip And I have had IP holders, I actually, just before we got on this call today, received a note from an IP holder that I'm working with telling me that I had part of my interpretation of a character wrong and they needed me to adjust it. And that's fine. I don't mind adjusting. I don't mind uh, rejiggering how I'm doing things to fit the IP holder's vision. Now, occasionally we have run into things where it's like, I have been a fan of this character forever. I know them we are friends we have had late night conversations in my head when I was trying to go to sleep like what the heck do you mean I don't have this character beat correct clearly it is you the IP holder who is wrong (laughs) and uh, that is is sadly not a position that they take very seriously uh as it turns out you, you can't do that um and that is occasionally tedious but for the most part, it's it's just a different kind of pressure and it's almost a relief sometimes because you will get it wrong. There is honestly no way to approach a pre-established IP with passionate fans and not get it wrong for someone. There is always going to be somebody who looks at what you've done and says, that's not my Emma Frost. And you just want to make sure that it's neither you who is going to have to live by those words, nor the IP holder who is also going to have to live by those words, just in a different way. Because you are expendable. They can get a new you tomorrow. You just bring in a new you. You're you're out. Bye-bye.
0: Well, I mean... We we know that IP holders can get it wrong. I mean, we were talking about Jurassic World versus Jurassic Park. A lot of the same names on the, obviously not Michael Crichton, but Spielberg's there, Frank Marshall's there. Lots of people behind the original Sattler Santler are signing off on what's happening in the future. So they, obviously it can happen. Oh yeah, no, that, the, That's gonna be the frustrating as
1: The IP holders can straight up get it wrong. And part of that is that who's involved does change. You know, you mentioned that Crichton was gone. Well, Michael Crichton passed away and um, we don't know how much of that original sensibility that everyone is welcome at Jurassic Park came from him. And you also have to factor in the fact that times change, character interpretations change, what people want from things change. We don't know how much of what I object to in Jurassic World actually came from the creative team versus coming from the the movie studios, because the idea of what will make a successful movie has changed. The first Jurassic Park was made in a time of practical effects and with an expectation of a much lower box office take being a success. We go back to Jurassic Park after 20 years away. They are literally standing there going, if you don't make us a billion dollars, if you're not the new Avengers, we don't love you anymore.
0: I'm looking to launch a shared universe because everything is <laughs> so what is a filker
1: a okay so filk is the folk music of science fiction and fantasy a filker is someone who filks it is someone who commits filk music filk is one of the uh primary self-identificational clades of fandom meaning you are a filker if you say you are a filker if you say you are not a filker you are not a filker even if you are doing something that every filker alive would identify as filk music it's kind of like roller derby where you can use the word jam for every other word in a sentence um you can talk about filking for an hour and only say the word filk
0: so when you're um, i was listening to um your, your album earlier uh when you're singing uh you you sing you um do you don't do comedy directly anymore but you're still doing a lot of presenting do you have other artistic pursuits and does that boost your artistic pursuit of writing
1: i mean i draw but not as much as i used to uh mostly because there's just a lack of time um i think everything feeds into everything else i do a lot of structured poetry i really really enjoy writing structured poetry it's always been something i loved And I feel that writing comic scripts is easier if you have a background in structured poetry, if it's something that you understand how to do. And that is primarily because a comic script at its heart is a form of structured poetry. It is a limited number of words in a limited amount of space. You have a very tight form. You absolutely have to fit within it. With a novel, if you come in between 80,000 and 90,000 words, you're a short novel. If you come in between 90,000 and 110,000, you're an average length novel. You've got all of this big wiggle room. With a comic, you've got 20 pages, fixed number of panels per page. That's all you get. So it's really a form of structured poem. Uh, and that is probably my primary non fiction based artistic a- exploit right now.
0: And does does that give you a nice reprieve? Uh, or are you eager to get back to your characters, your stories, the the fiction that that you know after you've done that?
1: I mean, it doesn't matter how much you like something. After you've been doing it for a while, you kind of want to do something else for five minutes. Um, So I think everything is a nice reprieve from everything else. You know, after you've been sleeping all night, it doesn't matter how nice the sleep was, you're going to wake up.
0: Uh, and you say that. I had some roommates in college that would disagree.
1: <laughs> Probably just a different time, man. Yeah,
0: that's true. Well, speaking of reprieve, I saw a quote from you that I had to follow up on. Uh, you said that uh, if it's just you on a vacation, if you've got a stick and some good boots, just about any swamp will serve nicely. What are you going to do in that swamp with the stick and, and the good boots? Are you going gator hunting? What's going to happen?
1: I'm going to go looking for whatever lives in that swamp, and then I'm going to play with it. (laughs) Um, I have a great gator hunting story that I cannot tell you because we are an all-ages podcast, but you should ask me at some point, probably after drinking. Um, You know, I I was a herpetology major. I love reptiles. I love finding reptiles. I love leeches. I think that they are super cool and super fun, Uh, although it's better to hunt leeches with cling film in a swimsuit than it is with good boots.
0: <laughs> well we get the conferences open back up. Hopefully next year in Colorado we'll be at Stoker Con. I'll buy the drinks. I'll wait until you've had a couple and then it's gator time. It's, it's Gator
1: time. time! <laughs> Try to do it when Joe Lansdale is there. I think it'll make him really uncomfortable.
0: Oh really good. To- <laughs> uh he was an absolute highlight of the uh, con this year. Everybody was, but he uh he was uh just Well, I don't know how I want to compliment him exactly, except that he said lots of things I wish I had been smart enough to say. (laughs) That is fair. So, um, esteemed audience knows I have to ask this. I'm watching our time and I know we're coming to the end, but I ask everybody and I wouldn't let them down. Uh, No drinks this time. This one I'm gonna ask straight, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? I have
1: definitely seen a ghost. I have not seen a flying saucer. So the house in which I live is somewhat creepy. I live in the Seattle area. We are the serial killer capital of the world. We've literally had more serial killers up here in the Pacific Northwest than anywhere else in the world. I'm in my office right now, but if I open this door, which is not a closet, we go into the library. And there is a ghost in the library. You can't see him right now because the lights are up and it's daylight. But he usually appears as a black hovering orb right about where I'm standing. I am not the only person that has seen him. Uh, Multiple other people who have been staying in my house because I have an air mattress here in the library, you can see it behind me, that people will sleep on because this serves as a guest room. Um, Multiple other people who have stayed here have asked me the next day about the black hovering orb. So we do have a ghost here in this room. And sometimes um, if you've been staying down here for too long and he is tired of you. He will go from being an orb to a humanoid figure that appears in the shadows in the middle of the night and that's really unsettling so uh we're pretty sure if they took ground penetrating radar to the property they would find his body we don't know i have considered having an exorcist in i have not done that because while he is unsettling he also lives here you know he was here when we moved in And if he is buried somewhere on the property, it's rude to expel him. It's rude to evict him just because he hovered at me. Like, sorry, dude. I I didn't know that you were hovering here. Um, But uh, but yeah, no, there's definitely a ghost. Kind of wish there weren't. Find him a little bit unsettling. Not his fault, though.
0: So it's unsettling. Does that give you any kind of uh, comfort that, hey, there's some version of, of the afterlife. Hopefully you do not the opposite of whatever he did and you don't end up in a house hovering, but you can go on to wherever there is.
1: I mean, I already believed in ghosts even before the dude in the house, but I don't find a lot of comfort in Captain Hovers a lot. Like, he is he is unsettling and I do not actually enjoy his... Sorry! I'm sorry! I know you can probably hear me. Note that I said I wasn't getting an exorcist in. I just find you unnerving. Leave me alone. You know, so <laughs> I I don't find him super comforting. I'm sorry.
0: Fair enough. Well, at least it sounds like he doesn't come in and bother you while you're writing or <laughs> try to attempt to be amused
1: <laughs> He has thus far at least stayed in the library.
0: Like, gotcha. my office is connected to the you your library. Okay. If you're cool, right? huh you go in there you get whatever book you need and then you leave the library you're mostly cool right
1: yep he he doesn't come out of the library he has not appeared to anyone in full daylight we have had our carbon monoxide levels checked we know that he's not carbon monoxide um he's just the unsettling floating guy in the library and it's so fun it's super fun we really love it
0: Shannon McGuire, this has been an absolute pleasure and a treat. What what better way is there to spend a, a Friday night? This has been uh, just tremendous. My, my last question is always some variation. Uh, if you could go back to the start of your writing career, middle, wherever in your writing career, it would have been helpful to you. And give yourself some advice that might be helpful to all of the writers listening or watching us now. What well, would you go back and say to yourself?
1: I mean, what I would go back and say to myself is social media trends will always change. You're never going to make everyone happy. Self-promote more. Uh, But I don't think that's super helpful, really. Um, Probably what I would say is it's going to be okay. You can take a goddamn, you can take a freaking nap.
0: Where can esteemed audience find you online, following you on social media, all that good stuff?
1: I am on Twitter as at Seanan McGuire. I'm on Tumblr as Seanan McGuire. I'm on TikTok as Seanan McGuire. I'm everywhere as Seanan McGuire. If you can spell my name, you can find me. If you can't spell my name, you're probably under the age of seven and shouldn't be looking for me yet.
0: Fair enough and well said. Uh, Steamed audience, as always, uh, you know who I am. Go to MiddleGradeNinja.com. There's thousands of interviews with editors, literary agents, all the best authors, all the best people. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.